Hi, I'm Justin Janetsko. I'm a former educator and chaplain for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and now mostly interested in aspects of humanism. Hi, I'm Chris Bobianco. I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist community and enjoy challenging myself and growing through conversations. Welcome to the Talus Slopes podcast. If you're questioning the legitimacy of your Christian experience, you're not alone. We've been there too. That's why we're here. We're going to call out and condemn the toxic behavior and senseless narratives perpetuated by Christians, and we'll provide credible counterpoints and bring the receipts. Join us as we confront and weigh in on some of the craziest things Christians think, say, and do that often go unchecked here on the Talus Slopes podcast. Chris? Yeah. Uh, Hi. Sorry. I don't know what HD is, but my doctor says I have 80 of them. Oh, gosh. That was terrible. Why are we starting with jokes now? I want to return to a text that we discussed previously, and I had mentioned that we may even come back to it. Well, Chris, you know what? What? This is the day. Yeah! This is the day. This, this is the day, day that we talk about... Oh, what? Oh, oh. Huh? No! Bad! That's the version in my head. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I was going to twist it into this is the day that we return to Leviticus 18.22. Not as catchy. I'm sorry. True. Not as catchy. But that whole phrase, as with a woman, that is attached to a man. Well, what does it actually say, Chris? Can you read it for us one more time? Yes. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't just say, do not have sex with another man. That is detestable. Right, there's a specific phrase there. And it's a qualifier. Mm. But what does that actually mean? Because conservatives, when they read that, they use it a very particular way. And the way that they use it is a proof text to demonstrate that when a man is in a relationship with a with a woman, that is good. Hmm. Whereas if a man is in a relationship with a man, it's not only bad, but the Lord finds it detestable. Right, it's just an extra tack on to the Sodom and Gomorrah story most of the time. Yeah, and conservative Christians that I have heard talk about that qualifying as with the woman part, they they tend to always throw that back to the Genesis or the creation account mm, that that they think supports quote unquote biological evidence. And then, of course, like I said before, it's it's simultaneously used to condemn same-sex relations. Which so is it, funny because even if this was a qualifier, you're looking at a single relationship, not multiple. Well, I, but yeah, I mean, they, they would say, well, that's the model, though. Everything that, like, everything that exists well, that's dumb. within that's that like story say, is the model. That's like saying the first Adam model was the best model because it was the first one created. No, people learned and found a better model, and now we have a better understanding. Well, I mean, not only that, hmm. but, but if you read that, if you read that quote-unquote plainly or literally... By, by the time Paul comes around, he's like, maybe y'all shouldn't be getting married at all. So a little bit of a conflict there. But look, when it comes to this conservative take, I cannot say with absolute certainty that they are wrong, biblically speaking. I, I just want to be very clear on that. Um, I think that they are absolutely wrong in regards to love and humanity, which is what I actually value. And Chris, I, I believe the same for you, right? Yes. But biblically speaking, I think that they are wrong. And we're going to present some arguments here to show why we think that they are wrong. But again, can we be certain about it? No. But yeah, we do have historians and scholars throughout time and space. They've completed really substantial work to show us certain things about what has happened in the past. Now, a lot of conservative Christians and pastors and teachers, they're not going to share these things 
with their congregation or, or with those that they're trying to teach. They're just not, uh, particularly when when they're trying to actually condemn the queer community with these biblical passages. And that's really the focus of today's episodes. We want to bring historical facts to the conversation of Leviticus 18.22 and really explore that qualification as with a woman. All right, Chris, call hey. me Arby's because we got the meat. Wow, you well, just took my joke, didn't you? No, stop. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I'm sorry. I'll stop let it. you do it. I'll let you do it. I'll let you do it. No, he, no here's the meat. We're, we're going to look at two major things that have to be understood before we can even begin to, I think, tackle the interpretation of Leviticus 18.22. And the first one is this. Chris, I don't know if you know this or not, but back then, when this was written, there was no gay as we know it today. <gasps> Bars. What? No, I did know that. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people recognize that, but it's very inconvenient for a lot of the conservative narratives <laughs> that are out there. Yeah, they try to convince you that it's not the case. Yeah. But research will show you. <laughs> right. Um, sociologist and University of Michigan professor David Halperin says that most historical societies would not have distinguished between, quote unquote, homo and heterosexuals. So it makes it incredibly problematic to describe people from the past in those terms. That makes a lot of sense to me. I agree. Historians have to present their findings under a certain burden of proof, which excludes individual figures from having their entire story told. So even though we may read about an individual in the past, let's even say thousands of years ago, and they're described as having a uh, quote unquote same sex relationship, that doesn't mean that they're gay right, or straight or whatever. Because if we can, if we only find a little bit of information, it's just the smallest amount of the story. We can't make, we can't jump to a conclusion as, exactly. as a lot of people like to do. A lot of conservative Christians are, are particularly guilty of this when it comes to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, where they say, "Here's a town full of gay men, and there's there's no proof for that. All we have is a story in the Bible that says that these men were coming to have sex with perceived." other men okay but a, a serious person a true historian cannot just make the jump there and say well here you had a whole town of men that were gay there would be lots of other reasons why men would want to have sex with other men at that point and even today that has nothing to do with being gay or particularly having love for someone of a of a quote-unquote same sex so when Leviticus says lie with a man as with a woman, the understanding isn't going to be gay in the sense that we know it today, because there's no evidence in any ancient historical tradition that that would have been recognized by what we consider as a same-sex relationship practice today. I do think it's important to note that it hasn't been until more recent years that there has been a legalization of same-sex and other queer relationships. So it's obvious that there wouldn't have been a a loving marital relationship in this mm. time, if nothing else. If nothing else, it's not going to look like a marriage would today. Yeah, but I mean, like, the issue is that Christians claim that that is the case. But, but it's, no, it's but, not. <laughs> but, but no matter what it is that they claim, actual historians cannot absolutely agree, based on the standard of proof, Although they will acknowledge that in all ancient civilizations, there's some sort of fluidity in gender and sexuality. 
That's true. I actually read a PBS article the other day about different areas of the world and different cultures that have at least one more gender. Yeah. I mean, even in Greece, with all the pederasty and such, there was still no concept of sexual identity. I mean, sex could be like same sex or opposite sex, but they didn't have labels for these individuals. Exactly. So even if a person favored a particular sex, they didn't see it in terms of like, again, gay or straight or any of that. Right. A a label, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It was more so who you were with at the moment. It doesn't matter what your entire sexuality or gender is. Again, we we know from historians that a man taking the passive role would be shamed and humiliated, which is the standard understanding for like all of these major civilizations, including Judaism. But even if a woman was seen as the active participant, men would not accept this. It was an assault on the gender norms of their day. That would that would be yeah. a very like if a if a woman was the one that was assertive, mm. that would have been seen as for the man to engage in that. He that would be a feminine thing for him to do because he's supposed to be assertive. He's the man. He's masculine. Mm. That's gross, but okay. Well, I think maybe a better way of saying this is that the world back then, particularly, was viewed through the lens of masculine versus feminine and not sexual identity or orientations. That is very interesting. I That is still a debate that happens a lot still in the queer community, is mm. trying to understand how femininity and masculinity affects gender and sexuality. But even back then, it was known to be a characteristic and not an identity. Yeah, like another example. In Rome, we know that a man could have sex with another man, and as long as that man was penetrating, it's not feminine. So anything that's weak is feminine is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Because and for some reason, it's weak to be penetrated. He, he's having what we would consider to be gay sex today. But that, that's a <laughs> masculine thing at that point right. in that particular culture. So get it. Like, it's actually masculine to have sex with another man, but not always. Right. Because if the man is being penetrated, that is feminine and always bad. So that's the whole historical vibe of the patriarchy, right? Like li- uplifting the masculine. Masculine would be strength, self-control, discipline. And, and Roman sexuality, if you ever get a chance to study that, which I highly recommend, particularly if you're like reading the book of Romans. Hmm, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come to Seems that later. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, not not in this episode, but in um, I think in the, like the Ted Wilson episodes that Ooh, we're doing, he talks yeah. about that. Uh, That'll um, be fun. I'm going to address it well, at that fun, point. Yeah. But... So check that out later. But they would also avoid the feminine, which was always weakness or being undisciplined or having a lack of self-control. This shouldn't be too hard to understand considering how much this comes to play in our society today, right now. There are so many articles, so many news posts, so many uh, social media posts that are about what a real man is. Mm -hmm. Because now it seems- You can't like Taylor Swift, that's for sure. Right? If you cry in public, you're seen as- It's gay to like a woman. Right? Like, (laughs) it's almost like they're appealing to the fear that comes from even religion or just anything that would make you seem weak. And so, sad people, Chris. Right? It's just sad. Anything less than tough and macho is feminine and therefore gay, which makes their- mindset think that they're being terrible people and that's just depressing hey folks be yourself right nothing cooler than that that sounded so uncool (laughs) but it is true and i do do know men out there ladies like it when you show some emotion so don't be afraid to touch with your feminine side all right well that's a relation advice (laughs) 
from Chris <laughs> and Justin for today. Signing off. Okay. Anyway, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, so, but that makes sense, though. You're right. right? It makes sense. Okay. So we we have to first of all approach this understanding that okay, back then there is no gay, there is no straight. It's none of that. Those labels would have made no sense back then. So you you cannot say again, no matter what your favorite conservative pastor wants to tell you about it, they would not have even even if it was just a man should not have sex with a man period they would not have seen that as being gay right they had well i don't want to say they had no concept but their concept of sexuality and gender was a lot more limited in ex- expansiveness yes. yeah and actually it's interesting because the bible actually tells us that it's just that most people when they read those particular stories and narratives they miss it because they're looking for the wrong thing we <laughs> will address that here momentarily all righty i'm excited let's go the second thing that we have to understand before we can interpret the bible well mm. is that you can't understand the laws of leviticus 18 without first recognizing the patriarchal culture of this ancient time mm. Because that's the framework that sets up the entire environment. It's Yeah, it's interesting. Carol Myers, who's a professor at Duke and a scholar, claims that Israel should not actually be considered a patriarchal society because of the extent to which they allowed their women to have individual responsibilities within the household. Mm. And that the Bible presents certain women as leaders. You think about like Deborah or even like in the case of Ruth, who advances towards Boaz, yeah. um, that that Israel did treat women a little bit different and should not be considered a patriarchal society as understood by the other uh, contemporary ancient cultures and civilizations. But <laughs> the, the the issue is this. She also says that men and women were not equals in ancient Jewish culture. Well, she's also saying that women have a lot of roles in Israel, but mm-hmm. at the same time, women were basically property. And and I think that she does acknowledge that. Okay. But she's saying that like Israel was a little bit more progressive when it came to women. That doesn't mean they're great. Yes. I, and I think I agree with her because I do think that's true. And I think that the Bible okay, presents women as that. But again, th- what, what I want to say about it is women are still property. Yes. Plain and simple. And the and Torah does a really great job in pointing that out. It's still the life of the woman to submit and to fulfill the quote unquote natural role that the woman's supposed to fulfill back then. So let's break it down like this. What was the value of a man? What were the expectations of a man? Well, simply put, a man has value in society because he is a man. Talk about privilege, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the preferred position in society. They're privileged above women, but also, get this, above weaker men, if that is possible. Mm. So when you think like in terms of like slavery and uh, adultery even, like uh, this is one of the reasons why you have these laws uh, because, again, Torah is trying to be a little bit more progressive and saying, look, um, we don't want to always be dominating other men. That's not good for those men. (laughs) And for the society. And we don't want to be, and again, like when we talk about adultery, we're talking about like the actual taking of another man's property. Right. It's not, I mean, which is sexual in nature, but it's not primarily sexual. It's more about taking something that's not yours, being Mm. a woman. (laughs) Oof. 
<laughs> yeah. So it wouldn't have mattered if you were gay, straight, whatever. You had expectations within these ancient cultures across the board, and fulfilling those male expectations was the natural and the powerful thing to do. And we know, historically speaking, that same sex occurred between men throughout history, but it was always on the side of the societal expectations of the patriarchy. So in other words, a man could have sex with another man, but he also had his wife and kids at home. Yeah, so it was just a little side piece. Exactly. Ah, I see. I see. And we see that through all, all sorts of cultures, historically <laughs> so <true. laughs> speaking. Absolutely. Now, what was the value of a woman, though? To have babies. What were her expectations? Well, um, have I'm, babies. Yeah, I'm quoting this from, <laughs> from the World History Encyclopedia. I thought it was like really well put, so I'm just going to read it. It says, women were the property of their fathers. Oof imagine that's gross then handed i know right then handed over in a marriage contract to a husband adultery was related to these unions adultery meant the violation of another man's property i already said that but here it is repeated see i tell no lies well <laughs> you try I, yeah <laughs> in a world without dna tests it was crucial that the bloodlines remained clear that is like you cannot read the Bible and come away thinking, oh, genealogy and bloodlines didn't matter. No, It's they, like the most important thing. There are literally so many gene genealogy lists in mm -hmm. the Bible, and it makes sense. If there's no DNA, how are you supposed to make sure that your tribe, your clan, your kinship mm -hmm. between other people who are going to inherit your power is intact? Yeah. You keep it on like the straight and narrow. Yeah. And another thing uh, in regards to the value of a woman, a woman who cannot reproduce they will lose their value. Mm. And we're going to come to a story here in a little bit about Lot's daughters that, that confirms that point. I mean, you read that all throughout scripture and all throughout history as well. But I think that the Torah does a great job presenting women as property, practically speaking. I mean, they're continually used to satisfy the procreative desires of the patriarchs, and that is what brings them value. Although, again, I think the Old Testament does flip the script a little bit on this norm where you do have women that are in power and that are leaders and you even see like and i think about like um jacob and rachel and well his other wife that we know about leah yeah you know rachel could not give him a, a child until eventually but he still loved her more anyways like that's a total flip of the yeah. script right? and that made leah really mad right exactly because she was the one doing her her, woman, her due diligence her, her natural woman <sighs> uh role she's Absolutely. like why don't you love me but the but the Bible's like, or I should say the Old Testament, the Old Testament's just like pro-Rachel. <laughs> also, and this is where we get back to Lot's daughters, consider the Genesis 19 account of Sodom. We've read this before, and we know that Lot does something that is seen by many today as being quite detestable, right? He right. offers his daughters, women, instead of the strangers who are men, to this crowd that is coming to Lot's house to have sex with the men. Why does he do this? And there's been like a lot of debate and, and conversation around that. Here's my take on it. It's not necessarily to appease the perceived quote unquote sex starved crowd. Like as if these men are just super horny and they've got to have sex with someone or something. If that was the case, they could go off on each other, right? Right. Like there or, was a or specific reason. Yeah. When I look at this, here's what I think. I think Lot is actually attempting in the narrative to restore order to the situation because remember, he even begs that the men do not do, the Bible says, this wicked thing. And instead he offers 
maybe a, a teachable moment where he appeals mm. to the natural order as that culture would have seen it. See, Lot understands the value of men versus the value of women in this patriarchal culture. And he knows that the men are there to take away the dignity of his male guests in a humiliating fashion, among, amongst other things. And in this culture, men penetrate and women are penetrated. Men are dominant. Women are submissive. For a man to penetrate another man, it makes them like a woman, which dishonors them. And that's a huge thing is honor. Honor was such yeah. a historically... I know even in some of my favorite authors, uh, they talk about how important honor is. Mm -hmm. And here he is so willing to keep these men's honor because he brought no. them into his house that he's willing to give up something dear to his heart or that should be dear to his heart. I hope they were yeah. his own children, his yeah. own daughters, because their honor didn't matter as much. But Lot sees his daughters as what they are in his culture. They are objects to be penetrated without consequence. <sighs> But again, that's the natural order of things. So look, Lot is protecting the men from something shameful. His daughters would not have been shamed in this way. Yes, it's not ideal, particularly as for them as his property, but it was more ideal in that particular situation than the male guests being raped. If someone's going to be penetrated in this instance, they would most likely be the offerings in the case of that particular culture. So it's not Lot's wife because belongs to him right. in, a, in a very specific way that his daughters do not, even though they still do belong to him as property. It's definitely not the male visitors. It's definitely not Lot. <laughs> but like, even consider the story of Lot and, and his daughters after the destruction of Sodom. Their priority is to meet the status quo of that culture, to become pregnant, even if that's at the hand of their father. That's their role. They even <laughs> say, we need to, we need to, get pregnant by our father because we don't have anybody else in this case. And then they even say in Genesis 19:31, as is the custom all over the earth. Right. Which obviously they're trying to carry on their family line. I quick. No, I cannot pass this up without saying this before. This is the same chapter as Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. You never hear them talk about this terrible thing. And by them, I mean, conservative Christians, but this horrible part of this chapter and it's right after the account that they use to condemn queer people. Hmm. I find that very interesting. Mm -mm -mm. But I mean, again, the daughters are just like this is the for custom. them. I guess it's this not technically again, it, immoral. Yeah, yeah. But again, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying here is like they would say it's a natural thing. Hmm. Like it's incestual, yes, but it's natural. You know how much incest is in the Bible anyways? Like, oh, there's so much. But that's <laughs> like what I'm saying incense? is like, why are we looking at the Bible to... <laughs> incest. Ew, no. Why are we looking at the Bible to see our morality when the morality of biblical times was obviously so contrary to what we consider moral today? Because we're scared of going to hell. Well, religion based on fear is dumb, but you know, whatever. No, I agree. Ah! Well, like, look, who knows if any of this story is actually true? Like, it seems Ooh, yeah, kind of Yeah, and that's not even the point. Yeah, but it does demonstrate a very particular patriarchal culture that is pretty unlike what most of us experience today. I mean, that's why we're so disgusted by the idea that Lot would just give over his daughters. But to him, that's a completely reasonable solution. Right. Because remember, he even says, don't do this wicked thing. Do Here, something. you're my daughters. Is it not wicked to give your daughters to this to this crowd to, I would get, think so. to get raped? I mean, like, that's I think terrible. that's a wicked thing, but Lot's just like, no, the other thing is wicked. This is sensible and this reasonable. This is fine. This is a peaceful solution. Incredible. No. Incredible. So oh, look, so when we read Leviticus 18.22, that qualification, as with a woman, 
is incredibly important and should not be overlooked. Two more things that I want to tack onto this conversation, and these have to do with the scientific and the legal accuracy of the Bible. Chris, is the Bible scientifically and legally accurate? I mean, it depends on who you ask, but <laughs> I have my doubts. Okay. Another thought when it comes to Leviticus 18.22 is that sex must only be used for procreation purposes. So that is definitely, for the ancients, a right. priority. To the ancients, semen was not regenerative. So right. therefore, a marriage contract took precedent over all else, and this included prostitution, for which for a man who was married would have been a violation of the marriage covenant in more ways than one. That's true. If your goal was to have as many babies and children as possible in order to carry out your family line and tree, then you would want to save what you have if you don't have any concept of how it actually works. <laughs> yeah, sexual activity that would not potentially result in procreation was considered morally wrong. And there's a really interesting story in Genesis 38 about a guy named Onan. Chris, you know what I'm talking about? I have it pulled out if you would like wow. me to read it. Please do. All righty. Genesis 38, 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty huh? to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep it from providing offspring for his brother. But this story to me is... It's it's so interesting because I've heard this story being used to teach a lot of things from like particularly about masturbation. Like, yeah. oh, you know what? It's usually from the youth pastor <laughs> talking to his boys. Oh, He's like, my fellows in Christ. You know what's wrong in you, this world? You, you know what's bad? You know what's bad? Owning got killed for it. <laughs> Y'all better not be spilling your seed out there. But the point was that he was refusing to give his brother's wife the possibility of becoming pregnant. I mean, at least, right? If nothing else. I, but I also think that the the waste of that, the quote-unquote waste of that quote-unquote seed, that ain't good in that right. culture. That is actually seen as, as being morally wrong. I mean, even the next verse, verse 10 says, what he did was wicked in the Lord's mm -hmm. sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Yep. So, yeah, that's kind of severe. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> One less Onan to deal with in this world. So we all know that a man cannot procreate with another man. Uh, I think that conservatives think that people that are affirming don't understand that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, but you know it was Adam and Eve, not Adam <laughs> and Steve. Like, yeah, no, we get that. You know, it's funny. What? I'm going to insert this. this. is funny. There's a joke within the queer community that it says, hey, well, it says Adam and Eve, not Adam or Eve. Okay. A okay. I both. mean, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's funny. Okay, fine. Never mind. Ignore me. Whatever. It's all good. Get but it. like that, we get that. We get that a man cannot procreate with another man. But for the ancients, that would have been seen as just a complete waste. Because they just want to carry on the lineage. That's all they care about. Exactly. Exactly. This is a misuse of sex. We know that this is the view of Greeks like Plato and, and the Romans Entirely. Right. So when would this come into play? That would be when you're taking over. It's a power thing. Yeah. Yeah. Power dynamic. Sex with another man could be used to show dominance, and that was deemed acceptable by the Romans. Because there was a purpose to it. 
Yeah, there's a book that I'm reading called the LGBTQ plus history book, and it talks there about how a powerful man penetrates but should never be penetrated. So in you know, in some cases, when that does occur, it's seen as okay, it, it, it's obviously not to procreate, but it's for another very important It's like the pecking order. Yeah. Yeah, it's got an actual other purpose. Now, we know that the Jews definitely rejected that practice, which is why Paul, even in Romans 1 in the New Testament, he talks about, you know, men having sex with other men, how that's actually a bad thing. Is he talking about love there? Absolutely not. Again, right. he's, he's talking to a Roman culture in which they understood that a man could have sex with another man, but he would have to dominate the other one. It would be done in uh with it was done out of power not out of love yeah it was done in the spirit i guess you could say of of power and not out of love so i actually do agree with i agree because consent is very important and a loving relationship is also very important you know yeah but even the jewish christians would have been like yeah we've been teaching this for the longest time now anyways we do already understand that yeah and maybe that's another strike against the roman christians because (laughs) they're just like well maybe it's all good we got to be men we got to be men Now, legally speaking, what about the death penalty in Leviticus 20? Remember that one? I do remember that one. It says, look. It's the one that has a bunch of crazy rules about what's going to happen if you do certain things. And most of the time, what was going to happen? Death. Yeah, two men having sex with each other? Death. It says death, that they they must both be put to death, which a lot of conservatives bring up and they say, well, if one of them was being victimized in this particular scenario, then why is that one being put to death if they are actually innocent? It seems like the death penalty is actually showing us that they are both guilty that because it's mutual or consensual. I see. Um... Now, we don't know for sure. There's a ton of stuff there that doesn't make any sense and seems pretty extreme. But to say that it's because people who are gay should be killed is an absolutely crazy notion and a major leap in assumption. Does the fact that Leviticus says both of them must be put to death, does that indicate mutuality? Not necessarily. Does it indicate consent? Again, not necessarily. Yeah, we know that Israel has a code of cleanliness that would actually be used to call to wipe out entire innocent individuals. Think about the Canaanite genocide, babies that were killed. Mm, yeah. Um, Doesn't seem right. Hmm. Think, think about animals that were used in bestiality. That is also, in in Leviticus 20, the animal is supposed to be put to death. Does that mean that the animal consented to that? No. Just because the animal did it, did they consent? Is there mutuality there? No. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's difficult to to make that argument. To me, it seems that this was in order to restore the cleanliness to the camp and to eliminate all traces of that particular situation. We know that's definitely true for the genocide, right? Mm. Wipe out these in, this entire group of people, including the innocent babies, Oof. which conservatives usually don't have a problem with. They're just like, well, right? sometimes, sometimes you just got to kill some babies up in here. <gasps> I'm like, well, no, you don't. <laughs> but if they weren't born yet, they would have had a problem with it. I- I mean, think about it like this. For the other man who, who, like in Lot's situation, would have been victimized, this could relate to the shame that they would have experienced. A feminized man would be of no use to that community in a lot of ways, which to me today seems very unreasonable. Yes. But back then, you know, reading the rest of Leviticus doesn't make that unlikely. 
I think other men in that culture that would have been considered not masculine, the eunuchs, I mean, look how eunuchs are limited to what they are and are not able to, to do within the community, according to the Torah. Like, even a man who is gathering wood on the Sabbath is put to death. Does that seem reasonable? No. No, not at all. But why does it happen? We don't really know. But it's probably more likely due to the way that Israel handled these sorts of violations of their law in order to to restore cleanliness and order back to the situation. Is the death penalty hyperbolic? Demonstrating the severity of the crime, some scholars have said that. They would not actually put these people to death, but that is demonstrating to us how how bad this particular crime would be. Uh, there are Jewish scholars that think so. The Mishnah even points out later on that you know if you're putting more people to death than you are keeping them alive, even with, they've, with, even with their infractions, that that's bad. You don't mm. want to be doing that. So look, it's really hard to tell. Ultimately, if you were wrong about any of this, who cares? Even if the Bible is stating that same-sex love is wrong, we don't accept that, do we? No. And if the argument would come back and say, well, the arg- the whole point of this podcast is to go in depth and to understand more of the facts and why Christianity can be so crazy. But e- this just shows, come on, there's more to the story. If nothing else, do your due diligence. Look at the evidence. Look at the context. It just strikes me as funny because the Bible is all about for actual love. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Shouldn't that be the focus? There's so much about love in the Bible, not about hate, but we always focus yeah. on the hate, not I, about the love. Right. Like all these instances that are recorded in the Bible, they appear even again at face value to be about abuse. Which is never okay. Right. And and especially when you consider the culture of patriarchy and that qualification in Leviticus as with a woman. Right. Uh, to me, it's right there. I mean, if you consider the context of anything tied to femininity and womanhood being weak and less than, mm-hmm. even if you just remember that, then it's automatically abuse because there's yeah. someone who doesn't have as much power in the situation, who doesn't have a choice to be in a loving, consensual position. So for our listeners, here's the deal. There's a lot of stuff out there that your religious teachers are not pointing you toward. That is actual fact and not just something that's assumed or extrapolated out of the text without even questioning it. Honestly, in a lot of cases, I feel like they're just making stuff up. I've said that several times in this podcast. Well, something that's interesting to me is that withholding the truth can also be considered lying. Yeah. And in this case, they, do withhold, omission. they do withhold the truth. They do withhold the evidence. Yeah. I was never taught this right? when this when accusations were made against me in church. Mm-hmm. And this is something really important to the story, as we've just displayed. It, it, gives it, it gives that text a completely different meaning to it when you read it in light of actual facts and research done by qualified individuals. Right. Why, why can't we learn about that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to me, that's compelling. To me, that's real. To me, that helps me so much better understand, honestly, like how messed up humanity has been in the past and how we can take strides today to correct that. Right. It's less about what was wrong with the past, but how do we learn from our mistakes? Yeah. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So look, guys, like I said before, if you're out there and you're hearing this stuff and you're thinking to yourself, well, like Chris, why haven't I heard this before? I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's a good question to ponder for a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's our call to action for today is 
Hey, wh- whatever it is that you're hearing from your conservative Christian experience, or maybe even just your Christian experience in general, find some like scholars that even exist on the opposite end of that spectrum that have something to say that you may feel is kind of offensive or critical based on, again, your religious sensibilities, but go and check it out because right. you got to see the whole story. You got, well, not only do you have to see the whole story, but like they are able to see things that you can't see because you have never been opened up to that world. Mm. And it does behoove your religious leaders to keep things from you in most cases. And I'm sorry to tell you. I'm sorry to break that to you. Yeah. I mean, like you said at the beginning, historians are trained to leave out specific things that would enable bias. Yeah. Uh, they, are yeah. In, they deal specifically yes. with the facts. Pastors, on the other hand, and church leaders can put as much bias as they want into it. Just and they do. Exactly. And they do. It's it's unreal. And I think that we've covered some of that stuff here too. Right, exactly. Stuff that they that they use the, the text for that's just not it's just not there. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, I think that we covered a lot today. Yeah. This and is I, I good. hope that, that this was helpful for everybody. Uh again, for me, when I started to get into that, uh the whole as with a woman to see what, you know, again, the actual scientific and historic community was saying about it, I was like, man, this is um this is compelling stuff. So there is not much left to do for this episode than one thing. But you already told a joke. <gasps> I want to wrap up with a joke. Okay. So as we've been talking about the patriarchy, I've got a, I got a feminist joke for you. Ooh, Chris. interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Where does a mansplainer get his water? I don't know. From a, well, actually. Oh my goodness, that's so accurate. Nailed it. <laughs> That was good. That was a good one. Okay. Checks well, in the mail. Well, actually. Checks in the mail.